I haven't done anything with my podcast in about a month now because my microphone died, unfortunately, and I felt poorly about this because my episode today is with someone that I've been very excited to not only speak to but share, Professor Kristen Andrews from York University in Toronto. Um, her work is heavily based in animal minds, animal ethics, moral psychology, and a bit on linguistics in regards to those. She co-authored an amicus brief for the Non-Human Rights Project, uh, discussing chimpanzee personhood and what it means to be considered a person, especially in the court of law. Um, she's very invested in the complexity of thought across all organisms, not just humans, which I'm very intrigued by. So what's really interesting about this is that I found an article by her uh, discussing language and belief and was really interested in that relationship and especially how she wrote about them particularly because uh, she discussed the animal mind when it comes to language and belief and, and why we think the two sometimes uh, need one another. So this is why I contacted her initially, was for this article, only to find out that three days after contacting her, she was planning to come to my university to give a discussion on the amicus brief that I mentioned about personhood and chimpanzees and so forth. So it was a lovely coincidence, and I got to meet her, and she was a lovely speaker, and I'm really thankful that this coincidence happened. So I hope you enjoy the chat and look into her work. Um, personhood is something we take for granted because we ascribe it to humans almost exclusively. And when you dissect what it means to be a person under human rules and law, it becomes apparent that the line's a lot less clear than we refer to it as. And Kristen showed me that a lot. And I learned a lot from her. And I'm, I'm grateful for discussions like these. And I feel that I'm learning a lot by listening, actually listening intently. And I hope you do as well. So here's my talk with Professor Kristen Andrews. So, a few questions that I had, I, I had a lot of questions. <laughs> um, I, the whole article, I was just trying to picture what it would be like to have language, or to have thought without language, and we obviously can't really, we can't talk about it without <laughs> using language, but like if, if you could put it into words, if you could put it into words, what you think that would be like, like what would that even look like? Just like, because like I, I can't not look at something and name it immediately. So is it just like, like what so, do you think? What do you think of that? Sometimes don't you organize objects that you don't have names for? You sort the world up into edges and you know floors and walls and ceilings, and you interact with things as if there's gravity. And you did this even before you had words for gravity or edges or knew anything about perception. And if we, I think that if we think about how you've thought about the world before you came to learn a certain concept that now is really salient to you, it might, uh, you might get a little bit more of a, a insight into how you might have been thinking at that point in time. Because this is not something that's mysterious for you. It's just, you don't remember. You used to think before you had language. <laughs> I think you probably didn't have language when you were first born. 
<laughs> um, so we all went through this stage. We just don't have very good memories about it. But we do have memories, I think, uh, about learning new concepts. Like think about you go into a physics classroom and you learn concepts that you didn't have before. Oh, now you think about a quark or you learn about even atoms and you think differently about the solid objects around you. But you, you know, you could think about things even before you had these sorts of concepts. Some concepts you need to have in order to think about them, like quark. But some of them, um, you don't need the concepts. You just react and interact with the world as if it has edges without thinking about edges. How soon do you think then, like when language first came to be, how... I'm having such a hard time phrasing it. Like, do you think it was quick that we felt a drive to like make noise at something to like refer to it? Or do you think like we, we could be like, do you think that that just had to happen? So you're interested in the question about the evolution of language. Very much so. Yes. One of the things that we know from non-human animals who aren't using language is that they have a lot of communicative vocalizations and gestures. And presumably early humans were also like that. So uh, alarm cries, uh, vocalizations that can be heard through the forest when you don't, you know, you can't see anyone because it's very dense, but you can hear that there is a, a lion approaching and you know what to do if there's a lion approaching. You climb into the trees, you avoid the lions. Um, alarm cries or food location cries. So if somebody finds a tree with a lot of fruit in it and they let, to, let everyone know and you just go towards that sound. Chimpanzees will have cries that, um, that will let you know how good the food source is. Um, and then we also see gestural communication in, in great apes. There's pantomime, which is a kind of non-standard form of communication that Anne Russell and I have observed in the orangutans in Borneo. And there's naturalistic gestural um, repertoire that we see over and over again in different great ape societies, um, in both chimpanzees and bonobos, that uh, have standard meanings. So it's not like all of a sudden we decided we wanted to communicate with one another. We work in, in the story of human evolution. I think we, like the apes, were communicating with one another for a very long time. And these tools that we had for gestural and vocal communication started getting um, more and more elaborated. And language evolved very slowly through this process of elaborating these natural signals that we had. That's really interesting to think about because sometimes it can feel that, like, our language is excessive, like the fact that we can talk about talking about talking about talking like when did when did it not become a necessity? When did it just become like us just kind of flaunting our ability to 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 make words about something? But I mean, even so, like even our discussions about talking still lead us and grant us like greater understanding of language in the first place. It's just weird to think about it as like a luxury rather than something that's just like for tools or for food or for safety or something of the like. That's where I think it, I, it gets kind of interesting that we, we differ because we just kind of have a playground of language rather than, you know, like complete necessity and the use of it. But that's true of our other technologies too. So we learned how to make tools, but 
This ability then led us to make art. We drew pictures for some reason, but now we draw pictures for just pure pleasure, for pure aesthetic enjoyment, or expressive, an expressive nature. And the same goes with, with language, right? Lyric poetry and rap music and all of these different things that we're doing with language, it fulfills this need that we have to engage in non-functional behavior, right? Things that aren't just for survival, but for enjoyment, for aesthetic appreciation, for, uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, there seems to be this, this drive we have to elaborate our technologies and make them beautiful. I really like that argument because I've been studying a lot about like aesthetics and like aesthetic education and a lot of philosophers who think that like an aesthetic education is absolutely crucial to like being a well-rounded person and that mm -hmm. our perceptions of like beauty and everything are just kind of people, people don't have the right idea of them and that beauty is more of this like inherent thing. And even though it is something that we like play around with, like there's still something in us that made us want to replicate because that's how, you know, it begins is the very naturalistic paintings where it was just portraits and then people doing things, people working. And then we have like Pollux and just completely abstract, crazy things that like go so off the rails. And I think, I don't think that like abstract paintings are like a response to earlier paintings, which is interesting. I just think that, that it's just, there's just something in there that just makes us want to just put out, make, make something. And, and the idea that all art is like mimetic and that like, it's all just a reflection of ourselves, whether it's emotion or whether we're painting a person or something that's what I've been learning a lot kind of puts it in, into perspective is that even if it feels like it's like a painting coming from just us, it's still going to be a reflection of whatever we're seeing. So in that way, it makes us feel a little bit more natural that like even the craziest of paintings are still like a response to something. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's what I thought of when you said that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, all of our actions are going to be a response to something. And I think it's interesting to to try to figure out where our desire to create kind of a arose from did it come from just having extra time we didn't have to eat so much food since we started eating meat and getting a lot of protein um so we didn't have to eat fruit all day long or is there something that we might share with other animals in in a sort of aesthetic appreciation so bowerbirds are notorious for building these amazing structures that um obey the laws of perspective and the male bowerbird will gather all these objects in order to construct this, this beautiful structure. And then he stands right here and he looks really big to a female who's standing, you know, farther away at the, at the vision point. Um, so it's not that anyone thinks that the bowerbirds really have a, a <laughs> metacognitive access to the laws of perspective and can teach us. This is something they've evolved to do, but is there a sort of um, aesthetic sensibility going on there? Darwin thought there there was. And it's certainly something some biologists think that uh, is shared in the bowerbirds and, um, and maybe in other species as well. So we see some weird non-functional behaviors in, in chimpanzees too. Things like, like nothing like drawing, um, mm -hmm. but 
there was a community of chimpanzees that put a straw in their ear. And this, so they started decorating themselves um, with a piece of straw sticking out of their ear. One individual did it, a female, others started copying this behavior. And so it spread through this community. Um, adornment is one of our earliest, is thought to be one of our earliest human expressions of, of you know, this artistic sensibility, putting on um, paint on our face and building necklaces and whatnot out of seeds and stones. Uh, now, so it might be Since it, it was like a straw, was that then provoked by humans or has, has that, has that behavior been seen like just completely on their own? Like they'll decorate themselves without us. That's my understanding. Yeah. This was not something humans introduced. That's so weird. But the the rehabilitant orangutans I worked with loved putting on clothes. If they could get a hold of a t-shirt, they'd put it on. If they could get a hold of an empty rice bag, they'd put it over their body. Um, we know that orangutans and chimpanzees, too, will make hats out of big leaves. That's usually just to avoid the rain. Um, but there's been some, uh, there have been some reports, too, of orangutans using a leaf as a mask. So putting it in front of their face and tearing eye holes. Um, <laughs> So these are interesting observations. They're not really robust. They don't spread through the community, right. but um, they're one-offs that we see from time to time. It's just funny how like, it doesn't feel like there's an in-between. It's like, we're crazy and do all these things. And then they just have little bits of what we do. Like, it'd be so weird to see like a half functioning, like a chimpanzee who's like mostly human and then, like, one who's not. It's just strange that there, there feels like there's this huge gap there, even though we're so relative in so many ways. Yeah, I think if the um, sapiens hadn't killed off the other homos, or let me put it differently, if the other homos hadn't died, um, who knows what happened. But if we had Neanderthals still living among us um, and other homo um, species, the gap might not look as large because we, we would see a greater diversity of mm -hmm. uh, ways of living in this kind of um, ape body that we've got and an ape brain that we've got. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not to, say, not to say at all that Neanderthals were really like chimpanzees. They were more like us than like chimpanzees from what, from what the um, anthropologists are telling us. But they're not us, they're different. So seeing diversity, I think, would help. When we see beetles, we're not saying, oh my gosh, look, this beetle is so different from this beetle. How is it possible that this one is black and this one is brightly colored? And right. because we see that there's a huge range of different ones. It's like, oh, of course, everybody's kind of different. But because we only have five great apes, um, each one seems very different. And we're kind of addicted. Humans are kind of addicted to thinking that we're like the best at everything. So when we look at the other great apes, we think, well, we're, of course, better than all of them. When, in fact, we're just, we're different. We've evolved to sit, to um, fit into different ecological niches. And then with our culture, we started creating um, more and more ecological niches and then having to evolve to fit them, starting off this rampant gene culture co-evolution process that we see other species kind of just starting on but not to the extent that we, we see humans in.
So, I mean, I feel like this is kind of obvious to say, even though we don't like to say it. I, you use the word in the talk, I think it's anthropocentrism. Is that what it is? Like a human-centered... I feel like we can't, like, we you can't find anything that's not that. Because when you think about it, like, even our idea of best, like, are we ever going to pick anything but humans to be the best at, like, like... I hope so. I hope so. Just the way I hope that men aren't going to judge all of the, like, best properties in terms of masculine properties, and that... North Americans won't judge all the best properties in terms of their cultural norms. That we as humans, we do see diversity. We see diversity across cultures um, and different age groups. And we recognize that what's best for a five-year-old is going to be different than um, a 50-year-old who is working at a bank in Chicago. Um, we have to look at the context that, that individuals are in. So we can say of a cheetah without a problem, they're better at running than we are, right? That's yeah. not that's not going to really confuse anyone that much. Right. But there are all of these capacities that we think that are important and special. So all of the intellectual capacities, we think we're going to be better at them than any other animal. Sure, maybe they're stronger and faster, but we're smarter. And then we get uh, we get fooled with those too because the um, Tatsuru Matsuzawa's research with um, Ayumu, the chimpanzee, who's able to memorize the location of, of numbers on a screen and then they're blocked out and then touch them in order um, after looking at the stimulus for just a second. And humans who have trained to, humans who are like prize winners in memory tasks have trained to do this task and they're not as good as Ayumu. Right. So this is a memory task that the chimpanzee excels at over us. There's nothing that we're able to do, at least so far, to, to um, approximate that. So it's a beautiful video if you were to, to go to the website and just Google chimpanzee AI, AI, and it's right on the main page. I will, for sure. Because it feels like our definitions of like... I don't know. It, it's like obvious that when we think intellectual, like superiority, it's who can think the most, who can think the deepest, who can have the most profound thoughts. But like, there's a possibility that even that, that itself is flawed because you know there's like, there's definitely virtue and simplicity, and the argument that like our hyperactive brains are actually like not anything to brag about. I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to find leading to the destruction of this planet right yeah <laughs> we're not doing so hot mm -hmm. and they also i've been thinking a lot about that in rates of depression so there are downsides to spending a lot of intellectual energy on uh, engage engaged in a lot of intellectual activities uh, it's not all cheery and bright Maybe we should try running some some more faster. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. We're never going to skiz a cheetah, but maybe we should learn something from the cheetah and say, yeah, running running more. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we'd be better off. <laughs> it is funny that something as simple as running makes us feel better, like even mm -hmm. like without thinking about it, just the, the act of running. Your body's like, all right, yeah, let's, let's get going. Yeah, academics um, often 
have to learn the hard way that they need to exercise and that they <laughs> actually can't function without exercise. So people get their little, little um, Fitbits or they go to the gym or whatever, but like, our brains don't work if we don't work the rest of the body. It's, it's very humbling to realize that you can't just figure everything out just by thinking about it. Because, <laughs> and that's funny. It's so funny because we can think about literally everything. We can put everything in a box and we can define everything and do it. We can just categorize everything. Yeah, there's still some things that we just actually have to do physically, whether it's look at someone or exercise. And I, I don't know. I said, I think that says something about how maybe not arrogant, but like proud we are of our intellectual ability. And I, that's what I was thinking a lot about during your talk is just how the things that we value in ourselves maybe aren't like necessarily the most important things that we value, that we're supposed to value, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly true that we, we sometimes get arrogant as humans and think we can figure things out just by thinking about it and making judgments or sometimes you actually just have to be embodied and in the situation. And then this translates over to difficulties with um, some psychological tasks. So if you're given a survey and you're asked, what would you do in this situation? How would you feel if this happened? You might just be answering about what you think you should be feeling in that situation. What's the norm and so on. And it has no reflection on how you would actually respond in a situation like that. You'd have to be in that situation and then respond. Oh, and then, you know, I would actually run into the burning building and save the kid. I didn't know that until I was in front of a burning building with a kid inside. Um, you know, you ask me now, I have no idea what I would do. Judgment only gets us so far. It's very hard. It's, not, it's nice to, because especially when we get sad and things of the like, there's the pressure that like, oh, I'll just think my way out of it. Certain physiological things just need to occur no matter what. No matter what goes on up there. That's right. And when we do our experiment, oh, figure out how smart kids are, how good they are at this or that, or whether chimpanzees can do this or that, maybe we need to get them to move and not just sit there and do tasks. <laughs> just have them run in place. <laughs> no, they actually about their brains. set up situations. Set up um, situations. So, for example, in the um, false belief task. This is a task that's been done with chimpanzees and with kids. And the classic way of setting it up, describing it is Sally walks into a room with a bar of chocolate. She puts it in a box and then leaves the room. While Sally's gone, Anne walks in, opens the box, finds the chocolate, and then moves it to a basket. And then Anne move, leaves. Sally comes back in and says, I'm going to get my chocolate. Kids are asked, where is she going to go? And kids younger than four will say, well, she's going to go to the basket. And you say, why? Why is she going to go there? Because that's where the chocolate is. But kids full, four and older will say, well, she's going to go to the box because that's where she thinks it is. That's where she left it. And infants can do maybe, there's some evidence, though it's now a bit disputed, that infants are able to, um, um, to anticipate people's um, false belief behavior. And chimpanzees wow. are also able to anticipate people's false belief behavior. But all of these require just sitting and watching kind of a puppet show or a video and just looking at things. Mm -hmm. There's another task that's been done with both children and chimpanzees 
um, based on trying to elicit whether they understand false belief that's based on an active helping task. So in both of these situations, the subject or whether it's a kid or a chimpanzee has to help somebody access an object in a box. They have to pull a box toward them, they have to lock a box or unlock a box, open a box. Um, and so that's a much more embodied and naturalistic sort of uh, experiment than the just sitting there watching a puppet show scenario. So that's what I have in mind. I think that those sorts of experiments where subjects actually have to do something and do something with a social partner that seems kind of normal is going to be better at eliciting the sort of capacities they have than seeing what they can do by making judgments about stories that they're shown. You know, a lot of studies that are very interesting. Wow. It's like, I don't know. It all comes down when I think about it that like, whatever is a part of our intellect, there's something that drives us to feel like we have the ability to find an answer to most things. And a lot of things are just super complex like that, like things where social situations change it and what you're actually doing while you're trying to do the task are changed. So, and I've found more and more that as I've watched research, there are like variables that are just not thought of, like really, really small things, like maybe what the person administering the test is wearing, you know, like something, something as trivial, trivial as that, like there's, it, there's just so many layers to it. That's right. And it yeah. just makes you think like, well, then there's, there's no like right way to do something. There's no like best way to conduct research or best way to like figure out the absolute answer to it. We're just approximating. And then we apply it of like, we apply, apply it as like, that's the answer. Like that's how that is. Well, that's, I, how, been... that's how science works. We try to yeah, approximate intersubjective answers. There's no like objective truth that's a view from nowhere that's independent of all bias. That's kind of basic philosophy of science 101, that what we're doing is trying to understand the, the world from a perspective. And ideally this perspective is gonna be shared uh, with many, many people. And that's why we try to replicate ex uh, experiments in different labs using slightly different methods. Sometimes you're wearing a lab coat, sometimes you're not. Oh, if you don't get the result, is it the lab code? Is that the variable that's affecting thing? If it is, that's really interesting. Figure out why. Why is that impacting the study? Um, so I, I, I don't want you to be like uh, sad about science because of these things. That's just science. That's the way it works, and it's awesome Wonderful. that it works that way. Yeah, it's exciting because there's never it never gets stale. It's so. never over. It's not finished. You're not like oh, I proved something in science. No. You can prove something in logic or in math, but you're not proving anything in science. You're getting, you know, more and more confident in, in your hypothesis. Um, you're getting more and more evidence, but you're not going to prove anything, which is which is nice. Gives you some epistemic modesty that you have to sit with. I've been giving a lot more breath to science as a philosophy lately, just because as I was growing up, it's always like there's science and the scientists and then there's like the thinkers and the ones who actually like, you know, expound and then like, no, like the, the line is so, so intertwined and I've just been so appreciative, so appreciative of that lately. And I've been reading a lot about like religious faith in like astronomers and things like that because I find that to be like completely opposite ends of like thought of like either logic and then, and then again, 
things just always end up being so much more connected. Even religious faith ends up being like, it makes sense why like we get there in the first place. And a lot of like scientists are, have religious faith. And I think it's just because like they see so much, like they just, they're very aware of how unpredictable and crazy things are. And then obviously there's others that are like, well, that just doesn't, you know, at least not like the, the divine creator, but just the idea, especially like deep space, just the idea of there being so much unknown is they're just like, most, not, not many of them are like, yeah, there is a God, but many are just like, I don't know. <laughs> so that was a little off topic, but I've been thinking about science and philosophy lately, just like kind of coming together and being a lot more, a lot more friendly to each other than I had had previously felt. Which well, is good. It is one discipline, right? So Aristotle was um, clearly doing science and philosophy. And you see this in so many philosophers through history. Descartes was doing science and philosophy. And um, it's really just once you got institutionalized education that you started seeing a disciplinary divide and people trying to separate things up. Um, psychology was the last science to leave philosophy. It was like William James at the turn of the last century um, where you kind of see this actual separation between philosophy and psychology. Both philosophers and psychologists claim James as one of them because he was kind of the common ancestor, if you will, in that development. Um, and then with the cognitive science approach, it's coming back together. Um, we left and we're coming back together philosophy and science so i hope that was a good conversation it was really nice talking to you